The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. All right, let's begin. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been a little little while. I hope people have been having a good summer, um, all things considered. And um, we have another uh, really good lineup um, of questions from the internet. And so let's just dive straight in. So a couple of really good questions here. So this is one that's been in the queue for a while, and I wanted to make sure we have enough time to discuss. Um, so Matjaz Leonardis asks, what social realities does running um, or investing in or sitting on boards of directors of businesses make clear that just aren't obvious otherwise? So, and let's say social realities. So, uh, you know, realities yeah, about yeah. how people inter- interact with people. So, Ben, why, why don't you start? Yeah. And I've got some thoughts. Um, so, I kind of take this question as kind of what do you know now that, like, like so there's a big difference between, um, which I think is kind of how many people who haven't run companies in particular or kind of been involved in large organizations of humans put under stress having to interact with each other and do something. Um, that's very different than sitting with your friends, getting high in the dorm room and dorm room and talking shit, right? Like where everything is possible and whatever my idea of what all people are like is obviously true and that kind of thing. So what do you find like when you really have to run into reality where, you know, people are, you know, trying to feed their families and somebody's in their way and that kind of thing, like what what actually occurs. And, you know, our partner, Chris Dixon, has this great thing, which he says, which there are kind of only two big kind of narratives in human literature. One is good versus evil, and the other is kind of uh, humans against the gods, used to be called man against the gods, That you know, that kind of thing. And I think most people in life kind of gravitate, like good versus evil is obviously a simpler narrative to understand. And so most people go with that. And you see this on Twitter all the time. Um, You know, it's let's identify the evil, the bad people. Who are the bad people? Oh, it's Republicans. It's Antifa. It's the tech bros. It's politicians. It's teachers union. It's Democrats. It's police. It's white supremacists. It's woke supremacists. It's Muslims. It's Jews, right? Like whatever fucking label we can put on people, those are the evil ones. Like, let's just get them and then the world will be utopia, like instantly. No problem. Um, But, you know, in reality, that narrative uh, isn't true. I think when you kind of get involved in like really having to deal with large groups of human beings, um, it's just not true. And the one that is very true is this idea of humans against the gods. Um, And, you know, and the, the way to think of the gods is they are the system. And that system could be the school system, the prison system, the free market system, the system of democracy. Um, and the worse the system, and often the bigger the system, the worse the people in it uh, kind of behave. Uh, and you know, when you run a company, you really kind of see why. Um, and the problem is, right, you can't actually, you know, fixing people, you know, particularly all the bad people is just like a ridiculous idea. But you can fix systems. Um, and one of my favorite management rules uh, is if you have two, you know, decent, otherwise decent people in your company and they absolutely hate each other, um, then you very likely have misdesigned your organization and you've accidentally pitted them against each other. So basically, the system has made the people bad. It's made them violate your culture and attack each other and backstab each other and all these kinds of things. 
that, you know, you go, oh, that's a bad, you know, person. And it's why often like you can hire somebody who might have had like a bad reputation where they were and they're great for you. And you go, well, how was that? Like what happened there? And it's like, well, those guys probably screwed up the system. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's the rule of life. And of course, the bigger the system, the more difficult it is to keep it from being evil. So like if you're a small startup, it's pretty easy. Um, you know, when you get to, right, Google used to have this thing, don't be evil. And everybody laughs at it because they can point out all the evil shit they do. Well, a lot of it is just they got really big. You know, it's not that they are intentionally being evil. It's their system, you know, kind of got that way. Uh, and so, you know, to me, that's the most important thing that I've learned. And, you know, as somebody running an organization, that's always where I start. So if I see bad behavior, I go, okay, like, is there a problem with the system? And Mark, you know, like we had some like interesting behavior in the firm recently and the kind of the reality of that, um, was we needed to kind of look at the system. So Ben, so you're, you know, you're, you're talking a lot about culture um, and, you know, your, your second book is on the topic of culture. So, so on this, on this topic, then, so how much does the design of the system determine the culture or, or are these more uh, parallel or orthogonal topics? Well, I think they're, you know, the culture is kind of part of the system um, and, and specifically culture is largely a result of incentives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you create some incentives and then you get that behavior uh, and those incentives are systemic. Um, and, you know, it could be something like like a, a, an easy one that we're actually talking about today is, OK, you give someone a budget and what happens if they don't spend that budget? Right. <laughs> right. Do they get it to bonus to their people? Well, you'll get one kind of behavior there yeah. or, you know, do you take it back? You might get another kind of behavior there. Yeah. And so. You know, and maybe you consider one of those behaviors evil, um, but it's yeah. coming out of the system. Yeah, there's a concept in right a lot of companies and in a lot of government agencies, right, of the annual budget flush. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, right. Which, At the end of the year, you can sell them anything. Right. <laughs> So company, a lot of organizations at the end of the year, they get to the end of the year, they'll have excess money left over they haven't spent. They, they need to spend it by the end of the year because the consequence of not spending it the next of the year, by the end of the year is that their budget the next year will be cut. Um, and so the budget flush is literally unnecessary spending um, that is wired into the system, which is the first time I encountered that. I was just completely flabbergasted. And, and then, of course, you see it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> right, right, because you're like, this is crazy. These people are idiots. Well, the people aren't idiots. The system right. was an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Munger uh, says about incentives. He says incentives, incentives play, as he said, incentives play. He said, it's impossible to overestimate the role that incentives play in life, even if you already know how much, uh, what, what a big role incentives play in life. Like it's, it's always even bigger than you think. Um, yes. And, <laughs> much right. bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the one I would nominate, and Ben, see what you think of this, the one I would nominate that I just see all over the place is one that's, it's almost impossible to discuss. Um, so Jonathan Haidt, you know, who's done kind of the most interesting work on, in the field of moral psychology, um, has this sort of framework, the moral foundations framework where he talks, basically it's like a framework for like, basically kind of dialing in how different people think about different aspects of morality. Um, and, um, he talks a lot about, um, what one of the moral foundations he identifies as the moral foundation of fairness, right? There's this kind of concept mm-hmm. of fairness that's kind of very intuitive, uh, to people. And, and in fact, it's actually fairness is an interesting one that you can actually I forget the age, but you can actually start to act. 
very, very small children, uh, toddlers, will start to exhibit a natural sort of instinct to fairness um, at a very <laughs> young age. And it's, I forget it like surfaces at like it's like eighteen or twenty months or something, right? And if, yeah. if and if you and if you've had little, if you've ever had you know little kids at that age, um, and you've tried to like for example you know uh, cut a piece of cake in half um, and give half to one kid and half to the other kid, you'll very quickly discover how attuned they are to the whole concept of fairness. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so it's this very, very deep, deep instinct. Um, but what he points out is there's actually two definitions of fairness. Right. There's one definition of fairness, which is everybody gets the same. You know, it gets the same slice of cake. Everybody gets the same. Right. right? Everybody. Everybody's treated the same. Everybody gets the same. Um, the other definition of fairness is a proportional reward for for, for proportional output. Um, I do yeah. more. Therefore, I get more. Right. And those are those are both called fairness. Those are both deeply intuitive and they're in direct contradiction. Yeah, well, you know, John Wooden had a great answer to what you're saying. Uh, so he's John Wooden was like probably considered the greatest basketball coach of all times. And he said, I used to tell my players, I love you all the same. He said, but then I realized that didn't make any sense. So now what I say is I love you all the same, but I like you all different. <laughs> I like you by like the effort you give me, the talent you have, those kinds of things. I love you all as people the same, but I like you all different. And that that I, I've taken that with me as a kind of CEO for many years. So, uh, okay, good. And then let's go to the next question, um, which is actually somewhat related, I think. And this is a very this I actually realized. At first, I was not sure of this question, then I realized it's very brilliantly phrased. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give the question, and I'm then I'm gonna tell you why I think it's brilliantly phrased before you before you argue with it. And then you can argue with it. So the question from Jay Gatsby um, is, um, what makes employees work better, love or fear? Um, and how should either be applied? And so before you say that question is insane, you may recall that is the actual formulation um, of uh, Machiavelli's The Prince um, with respect to political uh, leadership. Uh, so like a good yeah. part of The Prince is devoted to love versus fear. So anyway, with that in yeah. mind, um, how would you answer that question or you know, modify the question for, uh, in a business context? Well, yeah, I, I would just say it's a great question, um, but there aren't enough choices. <laughs> okay. yep. um, so, uh, so let me talk about love first. So here's the limitation on that is you do not want everybody to love you in the short run. Um, so if you think, think of love in terms of time horizon, uh, because if they all, if you try and get everybody to love you in the short run, it actually means you're not making any important decisions because they all love your decisions. Right. They love what you're doing. So basically you're just giving them what they want right. <laughs> um, as opposed to leadership yeah. where you have to go, you may want this, but it's going to be bad down the road. It's going to be bad for the group. It may be good for you, but it's not good for everyone. Also, look, there are just conflicts between, okay, I want to, run marketing and I'm not qualified to run marketing. So if you want me to love you, you know, if then you got to let me run marketing, well, then a lot of people are going to hate you. Um, yep. So you run into that kind of thing. So you, you got to be careful with it. Uh, what you do want though is in the long run, in the very long run, you know, short-term love is a very bad KPI. Uh, and anybody who, who wants to be a people pleaser or people to like them it's very hard to be a CEO or a leader of an organization if you've got that as a KPI because of the reasons I, I outlined. 
And now, probably, let me just, it, yeah. probably if, if you are trying to do that, probably behind your back, they're probably, they're probably viewing you with some level of contempt, would be my guess. Oh, yeah, of course, because you're giving, <laughs> look, I want you to give me what I want, but I don't want you to give him what he wants, <laughs> right, you know, like, right. because that guy's not, shouldn't get that. What are you talking about? So there's all right. that kind of thing. Um, but in the long run, you know, if you're making really good decisions that are generally good for the organization over time, then people, you know, will generally love you, uh, at least, you know, not all the people, but, you know, the people who matter will really kind of love working at the company. They'll love the culture of the company. They'll love that the business is succeeding, all that kind of thing. And so, you know, in that sense, it's, it's really good. So you, you know, love, love is a little like, okay, what are you doing? You're showering your people with love. Like that, that's a little, not the reality of the day to day. The reality of the day to day is how do you want them to feel about you? And you have to be disciplined about that. Um, and then on the fear side, um, you have to have, it's hard to imagine creating a healthy culture that people love without some fear, right? Because of what you said, if you want a culture that's fair and people get treated evenly, then if some people work like really hard and other people do nothing at all, and there's no consequence for the people who do nothing, then yep. that's not going to be a great culture. And in order, and then if there is a consequence, people are going to be afraid of that consequence. So that's fear. Um, so there, you know, some fear is necessary. Uh, on the other hand, like if the organization is fundamentally driven by fear of reprisal, um, one, that'll create all kinds of weird side effects uh, because you kind of root out all the creativity um, because everybody's just doing you know, cover, it's called the CYA culture is, you know, cover your ass is how it's known in the vernacular. Um, and, you know, that doesn't work well. And it doesn't work at all in tech because there's just too many jobs available. So people just leave. Um, right. So you can't have an all fear culture. You kind of need this balance of you need accountability. You need um, to make, you know, difficult choices in the short term that are good, you know, Confucian, as I like to say, the good of the organization has to be more important than the good of the individual. If you're going to run an organization, you have to be Confucian about that. Um, and, you know, it, you, you have to find the balance amongst those things. Uh, but you have to be pragmatic and realistic. And, you know, in that way, I, I think Machiavelli is quite underrated on just how realistic he was in his advice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which, like, it's easy to get people, you know, again, like, it's easy to be a philosopher and get people to like you because you paint some, you know, utopia that's unachievable. Yeah. <laughs> like, that that always works, right? <laughs> you know, there is a, you know, whatever, Thomas More or Plato or any of the utopian type people. And, like, but you implement their systems and it's a freaking disaster. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so Machiavelli actually you know, comes up with better systems. Yeah. Did Andy, you know, and Andy Grove is obviously CEO. We talk a lot yeah. about, um, and you, you know, we, we both knew, but you knew quite well, like, did, like how much fear was there at Intel under Andy? I mean, and, and I asked the question in the context of like, you know, talk about like, you know, semiconductors, like a high precision, you know, industry, like where things actually yeah. have to go like really, really well all the time. 
Well, so yeah, like he was, I, you know, like I think there was some fear involved um, in that he he used a lot of. I, I would say it was more like uh, stark object lessons um, mm-hmm. were the things that you know made Andy so effective. So he would he had a way of saying things that people really remembered and doing little things. So like he was famous for like, if your desk was messy, he would like write it up. And so people were afraid to keep their desk messy. But what he was saying is like, like we can't make mistakes in this business. Like precision is important. So you can't be running around with your shit all over your desk and work at Intel. Like that's just not how we roll. That's our culture is, you know, high precision. So that, that was more of a, like a cultural statement. Um, Look, a great a great example. Um, I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite Andy Grove stories. So, you know, long after he retired uh, and had Parkinson's, yeah, I went to see him in his office, the Andy Grove Foundation, and uh, he had this plaque on the wall, which was a leadership award awarded to Andy from the Santa Clara manufacturing facility. <laughs> and I'm like, Andy, like one like what the hell is that? And why is it on your wall? Like you're CEO of the company. How are you getting leadership awards? <laughs> you know, like, what kind of crazy thing is this? He said, Oh, l- let me tell you the story. He said, we had this manufacturing plant in Santa Clara and you know, it was just, you know, the worst, they were always the worst on, they were the worst maintained, you know, the worst kind of record, everything. Um, and they always had all these excuses, you know, they, you know, of, of why they, they couldn't get the facility up to spec. And so I went down to see them and I brought a roll of toilet paper and I, I, I didn't let them see it. I had it under my chair. And so I say, I was like, when are you going to get this facility up to spec and have it be scored not at the bottom, but at the top? And they started hitting me with their, all their bullshit. And so I took out the toilet paper. I said, okay, wipe up your bullshit and then tell me when you're going to have it up to spec. And they got it up to the highest rated facility in all of Intel, you know, in the next quarter. And then they gave me the award. <laughs> and so that was kind of, so it was more than fear. It was kind of, okay, it was clarity. He was great at right. clarity, I would say. Right. Awesome. Fantastic. Okay, good. Benjamin, thank you, everybody uh, who joined us uh, tonight. Thank you, and we'll be back soon. Okay, thanks, everyone. See you, everybody.